for the past two weeks, we've been talking about the state of the church and been challenging you to find ways to serve the king in the world in which you live. Today is Super Bowl Sunday. It is Super Sunday at PCBC, and I'm glad that you are a part of this day with us. I hope you'll be back tonight for the largest tailgate party in the city with the largest screen to watch the game on. Uh, we'll have great food. We have some games, some competitions, a lot of things planned. We need you to bring the tailgating food. Uh, bring it back. Your best recipe will have four categories of people who can win the tailgating competition. So uh, bring that in. We'll be sharing the food tonight in a great, great time. You may not realize this, but the Super Bowl is the second highest eating day of the calendar year, right behind Thanksgiving. This is a big day. People pig it out. And so we Baptists ought to have the corner on the market on tailgating. Can I get an amen from a rowdy crowd? Wow, that's awesome. All right, wow. Game day, game day. Way to show up. Eight million pounds of guacamole will be consumed today. 28 million pounds of chips will go down throats in America today. 1.42 billion chicken wings will be choked down as well. And we're going to add to those statistics. Just be here tonight in this very room. Also, unfortunately, 300 million gallons of beer will be consumed. We will not add to that statistic, but we will party it down tonight. Corporate America will spend $7 million for a 30-second ad to try to persuade you to their product. $7 million. Did a little bit of research on game day and our history. This generation may not remember who won the first Super Bowl. No, it was not the Dallas Cowboys. I grieve over that. It was the Green Bay Packers. Anybody know who lost that first Super Bowl? It was your Kansas City Chiefs. Amen. Woo! Just want to remind you, it all started with the loss. We'll see where it goes tonight. I was going to wear a Chiefs jersey for you guys and the Kansas City Chief fans out there, uh, but all they had were girl sizes, and so I couldn't, I couldn't get one this, this week. I'll go two hours if you want to mess with me. Here we go. Anybody know what university put the most quarterbacks in Super Bowl history and all the Super Bowls? The University of California. I didn't even know they had a football team, and they put in the most quarterbacks of any university in history. Last year, 100 million people watched the game. This year, they predict 1.92 million will watch the game, almost double last year's audience. That sounds like the church in America today. More people watching than those who are playing in the game. There are 12 teams in the NFL that have never won a Super Bowl. There are four teams that have never even played in a Super Bowl. Sounds like the church in America today. A lot of people are on the team. A lot of people are watching what's going on in this world, watching our world die and go to hell. And very few are playing in the game. In the Super Bowl, 22 people will be playing tonight. 192 million will be watching the same is happening in the church this morning around this country. Spectators showing up, sitting in a chair, sitting in a pew, watching the game, but not playing in the game. Why are so few people who've been transformed by the King of Kings not serving their King? Why are there so few people today participating in the game? 
When I was growing up, I loved all kinds of sports. That's all we had. We didn't have video games. We didn't have uh, the things that this generation has. So we had to make our own games, and we played everything all year long. And, of course, one of the big ones was front yard football. I played countless games of front yard football, but my sport of choice was basketball. In 1982, I was voted the Plainsman of the Year. That may not mean much to you, but that was the top award at our school. We were the Enid High Plainsman, and I was voted the Plainsman of the Year. The year before my junior year, it was the best year of my basketball career. There were newspaper articles written in the Daily Eagle predicting that I would be one of the top three scorers of our team. And while I was the tallest one on our team, no one on our team could dunk a basketball. And I was the shortest in our conference. We played against some crazy serious teams. And back in that day, it was some great basketball. Some of the best that's ever been seen in the state. Graduated with a guy many of you may not know of. Uh, if you haven't, here's a highlight. You'll be seeing some things in the background. A guy by the name of Mark Price uh, was on our team. That's what made our year so special. That's why I wasn't the top scorer on the team. It was Mark Price. If you don't know anything about Mark, Mark would go on to play for Georgia Tech University. He would elevate that from a nowhere program to one of the top in the nation. He would be drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers. He would go out to an illustrious NBA career playing on Dream Team 2. He still to this day had the record. He did have the record. He's number two now in free throw percentage in all of NBA history. Only by a fraction of a point has he been beat out for that number one position. Mark, our senior year, would lead us from what was predicted to be, we were supposed to finish sixth, not in our state, but in our conference. We were just a bunch of small little white guys with no kind of hope for any kind of season. That year, Mark Price led us to the state championship game where we would lose to Northwest Classen. In that senior year where I was predicted to be one of the top contributors to the team, there were all these great expectations, and we began our senior year, and I was all excited to be on this team. College scouts were coming from all over the nation, not because I was playing, but because Mark was. And it was a chance for me to get a college scholarship. I was excited about our senior year, and we began to scrimmage. And then as they put me in a position I wasn't equipped for, center of our team, again, I was the tallest on our team, but the shortest in our conference. And I had to play against people like this that you're about to see on the screen, a guy by the name of Wayman Tisdale. Yeah. Wayman Tisdale was a man-child in second grade. He'd been shaving since first grade. The dude was ginormous. Played for Booker T. Washington, one of the scariest high schools I ever walked into. Metal detectors everywhere. Little old boys from the country of Enid coming into the big city of Tulsa, going into Booker T. Washington, and I thought my life was at great risk. We began to have some scrimmages to get ready for the summer. Had that first one against Wayne, Wayman Tisdale. I walked out to center court to jump ball, and there was Wayman. And I looked up at Wayman, I looked back at my team, and the rest of my life was changed. Oh, not for the better, for the worse. That dude went gorilla dunking on me. He was all over the rim, and I could not hang with him or any other center in our conference. I was in over my head. I know what David felt like when he went out into the battlefield against Goliath and looked at somebody way bigger, way stronger, way better. And out of that scrimmage and the next two or three that followed, I totally lost all confidence. 
I drew a conclusion. I can't hang. I'm not good enough. And I convinced myself all the way off the starting lineup onto the bench and spent the rest of my senior year there. It was a humiliating season. And it was something that I allowed to happen because I allowed some stuff to get in my head. I'm convinced that there are people today who are sitting on the bench. They called us bench warmers back then. It's an affectionate term that I still have PTSD over. (laughs) And I made a decision from that day forward. I was never going to sit the bench ever again. I got saved not long after that. And I was determined that the rest of my life, I wasn't going to be a bench warmer. I was going to play in the game. At the age of 19, I started teaching Sunday school. Way too young, way too early, but I was teaching. I was in the game. From there, I came to Putnam City Baptist Church, became a youth pastor at the age of 23. Way too young, but I was in the game. I wanted to spend the rest of my life not on the bench, but in the game. You see, the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And there, for the first few years of my life, he was doing that well. He was robbing me of an eternal relationship with the holy God who created me. And I fell for his schemes. But then, when I became a believer and became a Christian, everything changed. He couldn't touch my eternity, but he still was trying to kill, still, and destroy my life. And you know where he goes for you, the believer? You know where he came for me, where he has been attacking ever since? He can't touch your eternity. That is sealed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus. But you know what he can rob from you? Your testimony, your witness, your calling. And he'll do everything in the world to get in your head and to convince you that you are unqualified. I'm convinced that most of the reason why the church has become a spectator sport and not playing in the game, why we are becoming bench warmers, pew warmers, or chair warmers, is because we have convinced ourselves we are not qualified. Our youth this morning talked about Gideon. Gideon fell into that trap. Oh, what can I do? I'm just little old Gideon. God did great things. Isaac was a dreamer. Jacob was a cheater. Peter had a temper and denied Christ, even custom to his face. Noah got drunk. Elijah was suicidal. Jonah ran from God. Paul was a murderer and way, way, way too religious. Gideon, I said earlier, was insecure. Martha was a worrier. Thomas was a doubter. Sarah doubted God and was impatient and took things in her own hands and messed it all up. Rahab was a prostitute. John the Baptist ate bugs. If you bring bugs to the tailgate party tonight, we will kick you out. That is not acceptable in the kingdom of God. He got away with it. He even had second thoughts about who he declared, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And then when things started getting rough and it looked like he was going to lose his head, and he would, he began to doubt Jesus. Jeremiah, way too emotional, the weeping prophet. Moses stuttered. Zacchaeus was too short. Abraham was too old. And the list could go on and on and on. So if you're sitting out there, if you've been listening in the last two weeks, and you say, hey, all those ministry ideas and all those things are great for others, but I'm unqualified, I want you to know that makes you qualified. Because you are unqualified, that's who God uses and chooses. He doesn't pick the strongest. He doesn't pick the tallest, the best. He picks the unqualified and makes us qualified through the power of his Holy Spirit. Let me prove a few resumes. Noah. Noah. Who was he? He was Noah buddy, I promise you. Nothing did he have to bring to the table. Matter of fact, God would call him to build something that never, ever existed before. 
The dude had no YouTube video to go look at. He had no Home Depot to go down to and say, how do I do this? And yet God called the unqualified to do something spectacular. He had no engineering degree. He had no construction experience. He was underqualified on paper, divinely qualified for the kingdom of God. What's your excuse? Moses would say to God, God, I'm nobody. Who am I that I could go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And then he did what most of you have done the last two weeks as you've watched in on the state of the church and you've talked about Acts 1-8 and how we can make a difference in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You've been praying for those ministries. You've been praying for your church and you've been praying for someone else to do it. Matter of fact, Moses did that. He said, Lord, Lord, send someone else, just not me. And yet God used Moses to do something that had never been done before. I look at David, as we talked about earlier. He was underage. He was undersized. But the enemy couldn't get in his head. The enemy couldn't convince him, hey, you're too small. You're the, you're the shortest one on the team. You can't go against Wayman. Now, you know what he said? He said, I've seen my God at work. I know who my God is. And while you may think I'm underqualified, my God is the one who qualifies. And he said, I've watched God deliver me from the paw of the lion and from the bear, and what he has done in the past, he'll do against this uncircumcised Philistine. My God will bring the victory. He wasn't looking at his resume. He wasn't looking to his muscles. He was looking to God and just saying, God, wherever you're at work, I will show up. He wasn't willing to sit on the bench like the rest of the army of Israel that was hiding in the hills. David walked straight into battle and played in the game. Mary Magdalene, who you may recognize that name as one of Jesus' greatest followers, could have easily stayed on the bench. You know, in her past, she was a woman who was known for her demonic life. She had seven demons living inside of her at one time. Mary Magdalene didn't hide in her past in the shame of the demonic that once owned her. She shined brightly more than many others all the way through the end of Jesus' ministry. In Luke chapter 7, there was another woman in the city. Some have tried to make this Mary Magdalene. Other Bible scholars most believe this wasn't. But there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, it says. That means prostitute. And there they were, gathered in the room with Jesus. She would come and she would break the alabaster vial perfume, a costly sacrifice. She would anoint Jesus in that moment. They say that that little simple bottle perfume was so extravagant so expensive it was worth a year's wages and Mary Magdalene gave everything in that moment she didn't stay on the bench she got in the game they were rebuking her matter of fact that's where Judah steps up and says oh we could have we could have fed the whole world what a waste and Jesus spoke into his hypocrisy and he validated this one who was playing in the game. And he said, wherever her name is mentioned, this very act will be remembered forever. She got in the game. She could have easily stayed on the bench. She could have easily said, I'm not worthy. She could have easily said, I have too big of a pass. But she got in the game. John Mark. John Mark, who tried to play in the game. First game he ever played in, he quit. He didn't even make it to halftime. 
It says halfway out on the mission, the first missionary journey Paul ever took, he took John, Mark, and Barnabas. And it says halfway, almost halfway there, didn't he make it to halftime? He quit the game, went running home to mama, to her home cooking, and to his soft bed. He could have easily said, I guess I'm just going to be a bench warmer the rest of my life. But God brought repentance in his life, a revival like we prayed for earlier today. He got off the bench and back in the game, and get this, you've heard me preach it before, out of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Holy Spirit chose John Mark to write the very first Gospel. Not the Apostle John, not the beloved disciple, not Matthew, not Dr. Luke. God took John Mark off the bench and put him back in the game. So if you're sitting out there and you're saying, hey, I get it why they can play in the game. I, I, I just don't, I'm not qualified. That makes you the qualified. Join the ranks of Noah and Moses and Abraham and Rahab. Don't join the ranks of those that sit in pews and stink it up supposedly for the glory of God. I've told you that's where we got the name pews. So you all don't even know what a pew is. A pew was the ancient way of doing church in America. It was one big, long piece of wood that you sat on in misery for an hour and a half in a Baptist church. And they called it a pew because people were sitting and soaking up the will of God, the things of God, and they were sitting and soaking in like a sponge that you leave in a sink for too long of a time. It begins to just stink or develop a pew. That's what's wrong in the church in America today. We're sitting on our blessed assurance. We're sitting on our pews, our chairs. We're showing up for church on Sunday, but we're not showing up for the game Monday through Saturday. It's time that we quit watching and letting church be a spectator sport and be the body of Christ God's called us to be. So what does that look like? Well, let's jump in on a couple things. If you have your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> I apologize about my voice today. Hang in there. Look at verse 3. It says, and even if our gospel is veiled, speaking of those who cannot see their need for a Savior, a veil that would cover their eyes, it says, even if our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded their minds. Again, Paul's reminding them, God didn't save you just so you could go to heaven someday. God saved you so you can make a difference in the world in which you live. To minister to those who are blinded in their minds, who cannot see it, who do not understand the love or the grace of God. Watch this. They've been blinded in their minds so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And I would tell you that there are a lot of students who are blinded at your school because they're not seeing the light of the gospel. There are those in our neighborhoods that are dying and separated from a holy God and are blinded by the God of this world because the church that lives in this world, the body of Christ, is not the light in the world that we're called to be. We're spectators. Instead of playing the game, we become bench warmers on Sunday morning rather than playing in the game every day and showing up for the kingdom of God. For look at verse 5, Paul said, so we don't preach ourselves. We're not trying to get them to become Baptists or one of us. We're trying to get them to Jesus. He said, we don't preach us. We preach Christ as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus Christ. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. 
He's the one who's shown in our hearts. God didn't save you to give you a new destination just to take you to heaven. God saved you to live through you, to be the light shining from you who once walked in darkness that now lives among darkness. We are to be playing in the game. But Satan wants to put you on the bench. He wants to convince you that you're unqualified. He wants to convince you because of your past or because of this or because of that. He wants to get in your head like he did uh, in mine when it came to basketball. There's a more important game. It's the game of life. And if he can keep putting you on the bench and just showing up for church on a Sunday morning, he wins. And so we're going to take a look into Scripture and we're going to discover God's game plan for his church. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, you probably know verse 8 and 9, but I want you to see the whole context. And as we look into Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to see that, yes, God has saved us, but why? There's more to it than verses 8 and 9. We're going to go all the way through verse 10. Take a look at verse 8. For it's by grace that you've been saved, Paul preaches. Again, he wants people to know how they're saved. They're not saved by joining a church or their good works. They're saved by God's grace. That's unmerited favor. What we don't deserve, what we could not earn, God gives as a gift. For it's through faith, and it's not of ourselves, it is a gift from God, not by our works, so that no one can boast. And most stop there. Hey, praise God, I'm saved. I got the gift of Jesus in my heart. But watch verse 10. For we are God's workmanship. What he reminds them is God didn't save you again just to save you from your sin and take you to heaven. God has a bigger plan. You are his workmanship. As a matter of fact, 2 Corinthians 5 says we're a new creature, a new creation. God at work in us, conforming us into his image, his workmanship. Watch this. Created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. God saved you from your sin, and God saved you Yes, for eternal life, but God saved you to make a difference in this life. Then in the rest of the life that you have in Christ, you don't sit on a bench, you don't just go to church, you be his church in all the earth, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and everywhere else God takes you. Make a difference. Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38, you don't have to turn there, I'll put some of it on the screen, it says, seeing the people... Those who were without a relationship with God, it says he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And so what did Jesus do when he saw the lostness of this world? Well, we know he went to the cross, but in that moment, he taught his disciples to not settle for the bench, but to get in the game. Watch it, verse 37. He said to his disciples... The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. In other words, he was saying, man, the opportunity is everywhere. There's a big game out there. And it isn't that there weren't workers available. They were available, but the workers were few. You know why? Because they were sitting on the bench. They were soaking up Jesus for their own good. Hey, God, I want to be saved. I want to be saved. Save me. But then they weren't doing anything with their grace that they received. Jesus said, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send them out off the bench and into the game. 
Maybe that's how Jesus is praying for you this very moment. The Bible says that he is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us even now. And I have a feeling Jesus is praying this for somebody in this room, somebody who's watching online. He's praying you off the bench and into the harvest, into his kingdom. Take a look at Romans 12, 6. Everybody ought to have this marked up in their Bible. Romans 12, 6. Couldn't be more clear. Paul says, since we have gifts, speaking of the body of Christ, those who have been changed by his grace, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each, circle the word each, that would be you if you know Christ. That would be me. I know Christ. Let each of us, watch this, exercise those gifts. God didn't save you to sit in church on Sunday morning. God saved you to get in the game every day of the week. To be a part of seeking first his kingdom in all the earth. To receive his spirit, Acts 1-8, and make a difference in your Jerusalem, your Judea, your Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth. You are to exercise. But hey, here's the deal. Bench warmers don't exercise. All their energy, that's why they call them bench warmers, all their energy goes into warming seats. We don't need any more seat warmers. We need people to get into the harvest, get into the game, as God designed it. 1 Peter 4, 10. See if you can find 1 Peter this morning. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter said this. If anybody should have stayed on the bench, you would think it was Peter. Jesus gave him everything. He denied Christ. He failed Christ. He didn't stay on the bench. Spirit of God kept him in the game. And he would now pen this epistle, and he said, As each one has received a special gift, there it is again. As each one has received a special gift, employ it. That word employ. You may have heard the word employment. That means to put to work. What Peter's saying is, hey, God just didn't save you so you go to heaven. God saved you, gave you gifts, and you're to be at work in the kingdom of God. So many Christians are bored in their Christianity because they're bench warmers. I was bored my whole senior season, watching everybody else have fun on the court while I sat there and watched them play. There's nothing more boring than sitting the bench. But Peter says, watch this, put your gifts to work, serving one another as good stewards of the grace of God. There's that phrase again, stewards of God's grace. We're not bench warming the grace. We're not just hanging on till we get to heaven someday. God has a plan and a purpose. He wants you to play in the game. And you have a stewardship. That's what Peter says here. That's what Jesus pointed to in the last part where we're going to close. Go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Stewardship. If you've spent any time in a Baptist church, you've heard that word stewardship. Unfortunately, it's been attached one-dimensionally to the tithe. Baptist stewardship is making sure you fill an offering plate so the ministries of the church can go forward. That's been called stewardship. Peter called it the stewardship of God's grace. That what God has done in you and for you, God has a plan, and it's his grace that saves you, and it's his grace that you are to be stewards of. That grace that changed you is what you're to take to a world that has what you have. That in darkness needs your light. 
playing the game. And so as we look at Matthew 25, verse 19, Jesus tells a parable about stewards. A steward is one who manages somebody else's resources. Do you realize everything you have is a gift from God? Your life, your breath, your family, your skills, your talents, your spiritual gifts, all that is given from God to you for his glory, not yours. You're stewards and you will give an account of what you do with you. The new you has been changed by Christ and his grace. The Bible says in verse 19 in the parable that that master, after he entrusted them with talents, with these gifts, he takes a journey and says, after a long time, the master returned for this purpose. Look at it. To settle accounts with his stewards. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, and before he ascended to heaven, he spoke into his disciples, Acts 1.8. I'm giving you not only the gift of grace, but I'm calling you to be stewards of grace in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now go. Play ball. And ever since then, more have been spectating than playing. More have settled for a bench on Sunday morning than getting in the game every day of the week. So it says here in the parable, the master of the slaves came and settled accounts with him. The one who'd received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more. Look at verse 21. His master responded. And he said to that steward, that one who did with what God had given or what the master had given him, wasn't his. He was managing it. And the master said to that steward, well done, good and faithful slave or servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of even more, many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Don't you know that steward was grateful that the master even trusted him with the talents in the first place. And out of that changed position, now being in charge of God or the master's things, he spent his life making it matter. He played in the game. And when the head coach came back, when the master came back, he heard these words, well done. When you take your last breath, if you've received God's grace, you're now a steward of that grace. And whether Jesus comes back this afternoon, tomorrow, or we take our last breath, we will meet him face to face, and we will all give an account, the Bible says. And what will be the words you hear? Will Jesus look at your stewardship of grace and say, man, you were in the game. You played ball. Well done. Or will he say, wow, Bill, you settled for a bench warmer? Matter of fact, there was one who was a bench warmer in, in this parable. If you go back and read it, he buried it. He's afraid he's going to mess it up. He was unqualified to take care of those things. He buried it. He had to give an account, and he didn't hear, well done. So my challenge to you this morning is, 
How will you live the rest of your days? What kind of steward of grace will you be? Are you going to listen to the lie that you're unqualified and sit on the bench? Or would you be willing to say, God, here am I. Send me. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed. The ones who win in Scripture, tonight, two teams will play. I heard Travis tell me earlier, they asked Christian McCaffrey, who, uh, who do you pick to win? Tonight? Who do you want to win? And he says, I hope both of them lose. Tonight, somebody will lose and somebody will win. In Scripture, you know who wins? Not the one who scores the most points, not the one who's more talented, not the bigger, taller, stronger. You know who wins in Scripture? The one who plays in the game. The coach has already won the victory. He just wants you to be a part of the game. He has saved you for his glorious works in all the earth. To be light shining in the darkness. Don't sit on the bench anymore. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy that you're not qualified. That makes you qualified. Just say, Lord, here am I. I want to play in the game. Maybe over the last two weeks, God's shown you a ministry. Or maybe he's been speaking to you about a new ministry. It doesn't have to happen in a church building. It happens through you, the church. Maybe at your school. Maybe at your workplace. Maybe through your family. Maybe through a hobby you have and a group that you've connected with in this city. God wants to use you to be light and darkness. Maybe he's given you a business that you're able to minister to your employees and your customers. Be light, play in the game. And if you have a past like John Mark, if you have a past like Rahab, if you have a past like Moses or Noah, get over it. Surrender it. And let God put you in the game again. Father, this morning, whatever, whatever response you're calling us to, God, we pray for revival through a spirit of repentance. God, forgive us for settling for the bench and not playing in the game. Spirit of God, work among us now. Send revival in this very place. For we ask it in Jesus' name.